Greetings and welcome to Resistance Recovery. Resistance Recovery is dedicated to the exploration of any and all topics related to recovery, spirituality, and culture. Join us as we interview thought leaders working at the edges of cultural transformation. My name is Piers Kanuka, and I'll be your host. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Resistance Recovery. I am extremely excited to have Dr. Bruce Rogers Vaughn with us, who is the author of this book, Caring for Souls in the Neoliberal Age. Um, I could sit here and gush superlatives about this book, but I, I, I won't right now. <laughs> but um, Few books have grabbed me as much as this book has in quite a few years. So I guess before we start, maybe a little background about yourself, Bruce, your training and your work. Sure, absolutely. Um, your viewers might want to know that I am uh, by training a psychotherapist. So I'm a pastoral psychotherapist, which means that uh, I am an ordained minister that doesn't mean that my therapy is religiously oriented or instructional in some religious way. I just do good psychotherapy. Uh, but it does mean that I also have theological training. And so I'm well prepared to enter conversations about value and meaning with my clients or systems of meaning uh, that come into play with regard to whatever they come to psychotherapy about. So I've been uh, credentialed to do psychotherapy for about three decades. Um, I think in the book I mentioned that I've done, I calculated at some point that I've done over 30,000 hours of counseling. <laughs> yeah, that made me tired. <laughs> Which may be too many <laughs> for a lifetime. Um, so uh, I, I wrote the book out of that experience. Um, but also, I've had a foot in the academy for a long time. Uh, I just completed this spring a, um, a period of 23 years of teaching at Vanderbilt Divinity School at Vanderbilt University, which is also where I did my PhD, finished there in 1991. So almost since then, I've been teaching there um, and finally ended as associate professor of pastoral the associate professor of the practice of pastoral theology and counseling which means i could never print a business card so uh, <laughs> that's that's a bit about me i'm from the south i'm from alabama originally grew up in southern appalachia so my roots are actually among uh, mountain people and working class people my father was a factory worker for 40 50 years um Prior to his retirement, he, sent, he has since died a couple, three years ago. So that's a bit about my background and what I bring to the, the book when I was writing the book, as well as this conversation. So one of the things that really grabbed me about the book early on is I, um, I realized I was reading a fellow traveler in the sense that over the long 
the course of your long career, you started seeing something change in your clients, that they were bringing something to the consultation that was really quite different. And um, maybe as a way of starting, could you just sort of describe what you were seeing? Sure. Um, one of the advantages, peers, of being old enough to have been doing psychotherapy for over 30 years is having the long view. So um, I've been working with folks uh, primarily with it, uh, mood disorders, grief, uh, certainly addiction issues and so forth, relationship issues for all that period of time. And I noticed over time that the kind of people, the kind of problems and how people talked was changing over those several decades. Um, originally, um, people who saw me uh, would often have the perspective, for example, that they were being assailed by problems from outside themselves and that they needed to find a better way to respond to it that was more constructive or less destructive. But the problem was located, if you wanted to draw a map of it, somewhat outside the Venn diagram. Progressively over the years, um, that's not what I typically see now. Contrary to popular mythology that uh, psychotherapy is coddling clients and just patting them on the back and saying they're okay and, you know, uh, uh, some sort of easy reassurance. Um, people come into therapy today largely blaming themselves for whatever it is they're coming to talk about, whether it's addiction, whether it's a relationship problem, uh, whether it's a problem with their work, it doesn't matter. Um, they locate the problem as being inside themselves, either a lack of motivation or a lack of something in their character or a lack of working hard enough, a lack of intelligence or beauty or uh, something. Or if they've been, you know, Googling a lot and reading a lot of psych psychological theory, they might blame their uh, neural synapses in their brain or you know, some sort of brain disorder or chemical imbalance in the body and what have you. We, we have a fairly psychologically informed public in the United States. So as you've probably experienced in your practice too, peers, uh, people often come in the door having diagnosed themselves. Right. Um, right. So my point is people <laughs> less often locate the problem outside themselves as being external and, and identify themselves as the problem. And this, the, this leads to what some researchers are calling shame-based spirals, where people uh, spiral down. And for example, the more depressed they are, the more depressed they get. They get depressed about being depressed. Um, and, and so what we've seen for the last uh, three decades that I've been in practice, uh, as you know, and this may be a something to discuss later in our interview, but um, the incidence of depression and other mood disorders of addictions, uh, suicides uh, have magnified 
during this last period of 30 years, despite all the billions, literally billions of dollars in the United States alone that we have poured into research about mental uh, health, mental disorders, and so on. Yeah, and what, what I've noticed is there's uh, a, a, an added dimension of hopelessness with a lot of these people in that they have availed themselves of, of this treatment, that modality, and this practitioner, and nothing's really gotten better, and often it's gotten worse. And so not only are they coming with a, a deeper hopelessness, but they're coming in having... Uh, accepted a narrative that really um, it's all about chronicity and, and symptom management rather than any possibility of healing. Right. Right. And I'm going to throw in a lot of different stuff into the soup here, Piers. <laughs> so another thing I would throw into the soup we're stirring is one result of that is uh, we have what now many are referring to as the mental health industrial complex, which is related to the health uh, industry in general. And the fact that it is more profitable to treat mental disorders or physical disorders for that matter than it is to cure it. Mm -hmm. So there's very little motivation in the industry. And by the industry, I mean, hospitals, inpatient facilities, pharmaceuticals, and psychotherapy. Um, there's more motivation to help people manage their problems than it is to really help them, um, if possible, uh, be cured of whatever they're coming with. Um, and some people have largely given up on cure anyway. I think you're alluding to this, mm -hmm. that some people come in the door not only having self-diagnosed, but asking for help to manage, right? as opposed to how, how do I defeat this or how do I get over it or be cured? And to shift gears a little bit, but it is sort of in the beginning of your book, this creates a real dissonance for, uh, for Christians or for clergy or pastoral psychotherapist in that we're coming out of a tradition where, you know, one of the ways Jesus was understood was to be a healer. So on the one hand, we've got this emphasis on the healing of spirit, soul, and body. And on the other hand, this, this narrative backed by all this money and all of this, uh, apparently experience that confirms it, that that's not going to happen. So you must have gone through quite a period of time where those two things were chewing on each other. Yes. Uh, and, and restate that the two things being to make sure I have it clear in my head. Chronicity versus healing Christian healing versus a, uh, medicalized management yeah yeah oh definitely they collided and in fact something that i sit with every day with people is sit with them and trying to decide whether what we're dealing with is something necessarily chronic so 
I'm not suggesting that everything is curable. Mm-hmm. As a theologian, um, I would say there are many things about life that just come with being a finite human being. You know, we're going to suffer illnesses. We're going to die. We're going to grieve. Um, some of these things aren't curable. They're just part of the human condition. So one has to decide, are we dealing with something like that? That does simply have to be, um, I still hate the word managed. I would, I would prefer the word, um, what do we learn? What, what do we hear? What is the voice of our grief? What is the voice of that incurable whatever that we face? How do we discover meaning in the midst of it? So there's still a lot to do, even when uh, the problem is chronic or, quote, incurable. Mm-hmm. But I sit with folks trying to decide, is, are we dealing with something like that in your case? Or are we dealing with something that is unnecessary suffering? That is potentially, at least, something you could... Um, be rid of or get past or over or beyond, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It's not always easy to figure that out, is it? No. And, and most often people are dealing with some blend of those things. But I think there's something, there's a moral, <clears throat> excuse me, a moral problem um, if people are dealing with something that is potentially something that could uh, be gotten rid of and we don't mm-hmm. label the issue in such a way that that's how we can see it right or to put it a different way if the problem is outside them is external to if if they themselves are not the problem then allowing the the patient, so to speak, the client. I hate client because it's a consumer term. I hate patient because I hate medicalizing counseling. So let's just call them folks who talk to me. Okay. <laughs> uh, if, if we label the problem in such a way that we can, we can see it as not identical to the person, mm-hmm. I think it gets us a long way toward getting out of that shame-based spiral. Mm -hmm. And in fact, ameliorating the suffering to some degree just by doing that. Yeah. Um, I've been doing that in my work with addiction, largely leaning on our, on our friend and colleague, Bruce Alexander's work. And it really does, um, to let somebody, to give somebody the ability to contextualize their suffering is in itself healing or potentially healing. Potentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So much of your book is really dedicated to, I would say, uh, to how we got here. What were the forces that led people to believe that their problems were almost exclusively individual and it's very hard for them to um, relate them to external forces. Okay. So now I think you're asking me to wade into the weeds just a little bit. right? <laughs> well, okay. I guess one way I'd like to set this up is uh, anyone who reads this book, you know, you may, 
you may look at the cover and it says new approaches to religion and power. And you may notice that Bruce is a, a pastoral psychotherapist. But then when you start reading the book, you find that you're going to be reading an awful lot of sociology, um, some psychoanalytic theory from the continent, um, some historical radicals who you had forgotten about. Um, right. <laughs> and it really, it starts painting a picture that's, um, it's a historical picture and it, it really shows how, you know, this crept, uh, I don't want to use the word creep, but this, these changes were happening and we weren't, we weren't lifetime with them. Right. Yeah. Right. So this is a, this book is an attempt. And first of all, it was something I was doing for myself because I was trying to make sense out of the changes I referred to a while ago in what was happening with people who came to talk to me mm -hmm. and how people were talking in counseling. So I was doing it because I was trying to figure something out, but I felt that if I could try to figure at least something out about it, that would probably mean something for other people as well. So the book is a big picture view, right? I mean, it's, it's almost the biggest picture you can imagine in terms of context. Mm -hmm. or, and, and so it's an effort to place individual and small groups of people suffering in the context of the entire planet, basically. Mm -hmm. um, society globally and society locally, too. And, you know, the United States may have a different flavor, clearly, than Ghana, Kenya, Saudi Arabia, and so forth. And yet what we're looking at today does have a global character, even though it's um, very amenable to being morphed to fit local cultures. Mm -hmm. So the word neoliberal is rather off-putting, in my opinion. I think it's a terrible word. Uh, people hear it and think you're talking about some political movement or some theological uh, approach. It's about neither one. Uh, the word neoliberal was coined early in the 20th century, I think in the 1930s, as actually an, a philosophy of economics, basically. So the word liberal in that sense refers to the free market. And neo just means a new phase or a new approach or a new idea about how to shape the market. So that basically is where the term arose from. Um, so it is, for one thing, about uh, economics, issues like um, worsening inequality in our nation and across uh, the world. Uh, but it's also about politics. It's about power. It's about how a small ruling class of economic elites take over and control the instruments of government. And then finally, not only politics, but culture. And so this is where I have a dog in the floor snoring. I hope you don't hear that on the video. Um, this is about um, how neoliberalism is a cultural movement, not just an economic and political one. And when we say culture, what do we mean? Well, we're talking about the water we swim in. We're talking about how you and I imagine what it means to be a human being. 
and how to be a quote, good human being. So it's really assumptions about values, the values we live by. What does neoliberalism as a economic political movement do when it hits the culture? What happens when it hits the culture is, so in economics and politics, you have privatization. We're familiar with that word in economics. Privatization means we take um, industries and services that maybe were once done by the government and we turn them over to private companies. That's privatization. In the culture, privatization is morphed into radical individualism. So all problems and all successes are attributed to individuals making rational decisions in the marketplace. So we end up with what Wendy Brown and many others have called the entrepreneurial self. And we've just come to accept this is the way it is. Like I said, it's the water we swim in. So social media is a great example of this. Um, what do we do in social media? Well, we each, to quote Wendy Brown again, become our own little capitals. We, we, eat, we see ourselves as a business, a little business, and we wanna promote a profile. So we draw up a profile for social media. And when we make a post on the social media, one of the many things we're doing is we're promoting our individual, our individuality. And we try to portray ourselves typically in the best possible light. So we're marketing. We're marketing our own individual lives, even very personal things like diseases and deaths and grief mm -hmm. become something that whether we intend to do it or not are items that market who we are. So this goes back to what I was talking about. If everything is traced back to individuals, then who's responsible for their problems? Individuals. Yeah. Our, in politics, Margaret Thatcher in the UK was, you know, she was elected prime minister about a year before Ronald Reagan was elected president. And in politics in the UK and the US, which is kind of ground zero for the neoliberal phase of capitalism, Thatcher famously said, being a little more of a philosopher than Reagan, she said, there's no such thing as society. There are only individual men and women. And later she added, and their families. Now think about that for a minute. There's no such thing as society. There's only individuals. So what we normally, in this philosophy, what we normally would call society is just adding up all these individual decisions and experiences to an agglomeration. So everything is eventually traceable back to individuals making decisions. So peers, if you become an addict, if you become depressed, if you are anxious, if you're screwing up your relationships, who is, who's the problem? You are. Right. And we've just come to accept this. And we dress this up in this, um, you especially see this in the world of substance abuse as accountability. Personal yeah. accountability is one of the favorite phrases of neoliberal dialogue. Mm -hmm. And it's tempting as a Christian, as a theologian, 
we hear the term personal responsibility and we think, oh, that's great. That fits well with our faith, mm-hmm. except it really doesn't. It only does to a point. Even the concept of sin, traditionally, a word we don't use much anymore because it has so much baggage, but even the concept of sin in, in the Bible and in Christian history was thought to be a human state in which we all participate. It's that before it's an individual decision, right? So, so sins were thought as something that come out of a collective state of being rather than I'm a sinner and I'm bad internally. So, you know, it's, it's my fault as an individual. It doesn't mean we don't believe in individual agency. It just means my agency as an individual is much smaller than the water that I'm swimming in. And when we have, um, privatization, and when we have slashing of social spending, slashing of the taxes, we're really delivering a message of not only every man for himself or herself, um, we're also delivering a message of there will be winners and there will be losers. And that uh, you really got to get your hustle on. Correct. So the neoliberal phase of capitalism, this is true of capitalism to begin with, but neoliberalism uh, just turned the heat up on it like it's on steroids. Um, It has made us more responsible than ever before, and it legitimates inequality. It basically says we need things to be, I mean, if you don't believe me, read Friedrich von Hayek, read some of the original uh, philosophers of, of economics that taught this. They said you have to have economic inequality because otherwise people won't be incentivized right. to be creative and to work. Yeah. Now that's a huge assumption because we have lots of periods of history and other cultures to point to where that was not the case. Yeah, there were fairly equal societies, whether it be in tribes or whole regions that did just fine, you know, working and getting by without inequality, with, without the inequality we see today. Oh, we've even had societies where greed was so frowned upon that it was almost unknown. And yeah, right. now we're told that it's almost like essential to our human makeup. Um, So one of the things that you talk about in there that was really helpful was you talk about there being distal and proximate causes of one's suffering. And proximate causes are easy to locate if it's a divorce or cancer or the loss of a parent. But the distal, I'm, I'm suffering I have some awareness that I'm suffering, something's not right, and yet I am at a complete loss as to what's happening to me. And that's very much related to what you say is the the worst symptom of uh, normotic illness, I love this phrase, um, that people 
in its most extreme form, there's something wrong and they don't even know there's something wrong. But there's more gray areas where I vaguely sense something's wrong, but I'm not, I'm, I have no sense of where or why that is, right. which describes many, many of my clients now. Yeah, to give credit where it's due, you know, I, I borrowed the, those phrases of distal and proximate suffering from David Smale, who was a psychologist in the UK. And normotic illness is from Christopher Bolas, who's a psychoanalyst. Once practiced in California, he's now in the UK as well. Um, but the basic point in the that Smale was trying to make is when people come to a therapist or some other caregiver with personal problems, they're usually aware of the proximate causes of suffering. In other words, things that are near them, their family, their coworkers, their friends, their, perhaps their neighborhoods. Uh, they're aware of, to, to put more nuance to it, they're aware of their own past. Mm -hmm. So let's say if they have trauma in their history, whether in, in the family or otherwise, they know that that probably has something to do with their addiction or their depression, for example. What they tend not to be aware of is what he called the distal powers. The distal powers are those what the Apostle Paul would have called them the powers and principalities. They're those huge institutional structures that shape all of society around us, including the family and friendships and the proximal things that we're most aware of. Um, and that's what we're less aware of. So I said in the book, there's two kinds of unconsciousness in what I call third order suffering. I mean, I coined the phrase, but not the idea. So <laughs> um, there's two kinds of unconsciousness in third order suffering. There's first, a lack of awareness of what I just called the distal powers. There's a lack of awareness of the causes of our suffering. We, we, we can't really explain it all. The best we can do is explain what is close to us and what is closest of all to us is our personal decisions. So we're back to self-blame again. Right. The second kind of unconsciousness is even more pernicious. And that is people who are suffering but are unaware they're suffering. Now, I should say this is not a new idea. Soren Kierkegaard, of all people, back in, what was it, the 17th century, um, I think I may have the date wrong, but he wrote a book called The Sickness Unto Death, which was a book about despair. And he said in that book that one of the types of despair, and he said the deepest and most pernicious form of despair was despair that's not aware of itself as being despair. Right. And when he gave examples of that, he talked about people who are entertaining themselves to death, people who are losing themselves in social activities. I mean, today it takes, it's much easier today, right? Mm -hmm. Because we carry the world of the internet in our pockets. Mm -hmm. So um, it's easy to lose ourselves in front of screens all day. So we can literally entertain ourselves to death. 
So we can occupy ourselves all the time to such a degree that we never have to think about what we're feeling. Yeah. So we have this strange phenomenon today that I mentioned in the book of people who just out of the blue, who seem to have had no history of depression, uh, suiciding. This is actually frighteningly, frighteningly common. Right. We assume people who suicide are depressed, but we have many people suiciding now who have no history of depression mm-hmm. that anyone knows about. And similarly, we have people who go homicidal with no history of crime. Right. Especially in mass shootings where it's theaters, schools, workplaces, or wherever. And oddly enough, many of them have been labeled by someone else as depressed, and yet violent behavior towards others is rarely a symptom of depression. Correct. So in this new, but I got to tell you, when you were writing about Kierkegaard in there, and you know he's near and dear to my own heart, I could not help but thinking that you know some sort of Danish bourgeoisie who plays backgammon and drinks and has gout whatever I can get that image right he's just distracting himself endlessly but what I literally see now are it's usually millennial men who their presentation is such that in the absence of a phone they are literally you know there's no eye contact there's no real social intelligence often there's not even much muscle tone because there's no sports or labor in their background mm. and you you ask you, you try to engage with this and they they really have nothing to say to you um i read somebody i can't recall who said described maybe it was uh philip zimbardo he said that presentation now is going to be almost immediately diagnosed as depression but he suggested that it was much closer to you know what an older psychology would call an apathia Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that they're at a point where they don't care but they actually don't seem to care that they don't care right as if the person has been anesthetized yeah or removed or yeah right right or we suffer often from what from what someone is called the anesthesia of the familiar mm. you want to say more about that I think this goes back to what I was um, saying, what we, what we accept as normal, whatever normality is, uh, yes. is, is so familiar to us. It's, un, it's literally unquestioned. Mm-hmm. So I actually think of the current uh, phase of capitalism as a, a kind of religion. Mm-hmm. It gives a kind of order and meaning to life. It does everything that religions used to do. It gives order and meaning to life. It orders our values, what is more and less important. Um, And it's set up as normal, what's accepted to be true. Mm -hmm. Such as everything is due to individual decisions, Mm -hmm. one of many. And another being that, you know, the purpose of life is the accumulation of money. Yeah. And the identification of money with wealth. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. So it's familiar and it anesthetizes us. We don't even ask, we don't even know the questions to ask. Right. And I'm noticing there's this generational thing with that too, where if you're, you know, I'm 58, but if you're in your mid forties or older, uh, you have what uh, the theologian Kent Dunnington has called a contrasting set, meaning there was a period of time when it wasn't like this, when you were nourished by your interpersonal relations and conversations were about big questions and so forth. Um, whereas this younger generation, there is no contrasting set. And they're just, this is how it's always been. And so in a sense, they don't really know what you're talking about. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so what I'm calling the culture of neoliberalism, or really the politics, the economics, and the culture all combined, is a is in my thinking a religion that has uh, marginalized other religions. So that we, as you put it, we have no contrasting sets. Yes. It's a, it's a religion that's wiped out other religions. Yeah, and you begin the book by challenging the, the, the um, and I, I totally agree with you, I, I never thought of it, you challenge the secularization theory, mm -hmm. which is, especially the more conservative you are, you will say all these social problems are due to the fact that we've become a, a secular society and we've lost these absolute values. But you really show that it, it's not that. It's actually this new religion has succeeded in disembedding us from all the structures that formerly gave life meaning. Mm -hmm. Uh, yes, I was blanking a minute on uh, the well-known scholar who wrote the book, A Secular Age. Taylor? Yes, Taylor, thank you. I, I've, I've said to my students more recently that I'm, I'm to the age where I can remember the title of the book or the author, but I can't remember both. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, beg to, I beg to differ that we're living in a secular age. Um, what I think we're living in is a time when the religious impetus has changed clothes. So there's a theologian in the UK, a, a Roman Catholic theologian named Nicholas Lash, who writes in a book uh, of essays that he gathered together. Uh, I think the book is called The Beginning and End of Religion. He says in the book that the term religion is actually unfortunate. Uh, the term religion was created in 17th century England to describe a, a, a part of life that was separate from other parts, like separate from politics, separate from education, separate from the arts, and so on. And this too has been normalized. So we think of religions as something very private, again, privatized, very personal, no longer something that is public or collective. It's a personal faith, not a collective faith. But going back to what Lash says, he says, um, human beings are spontaneously idolatrous. We center our lives on something. I think that is true. And that something doesn't have to be garbed in religious language. 
<clears throat> it can be an addiction of some kind. It can be, um, actually, I think addiction is a useful term that probably encompasses a lot of stuff we don't usually apply it to. Yeah. So uh, capitalism is a religion um, whose God is the invisible hand of the market, for example, and whose highest value is money as wealth. Now, wealth hasn't always been thought of as only monetary, but in this religion, it is. It's purely monetary. And relationships are not uh, valuable in and of in and of themselves, relationships become transactional or utilitarian. So I become your friend if I think I can use you to uh, in my business, you know, or to promote myself in some form or fashion. So it reduces relationships. Uh, Zygmunt Bauman is a sociologist I quote a lot in the book. Uh, Bauman has died now. I think he was about 100 years old when he died. But he says in, in the age he calls liquid modernity, which uh, is the neoliberal age, uh, that we have replaced uh, relationships with networking. So instead of having deep, meaningful relationships so that other people truly know us, we network. Right. And, and the relationships are almost always uh, temporary. For yes. the duration of the contract between us. Correct. You yeah. can friend and unfriend very easily. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Um, so when Bauman gets into this notion of liquidity, he's really saying that this is what happens when there is no rootedness in anything communal. That there's suddenly now an anxiety that uh, behind the anxiety is a question of who am I and who do I need to be to optimize this mm -hmm. relationship or job or what have you? Um, but the, the thing, and you, you, do, you do point at this in the book, you, you, you talk about how we've gotten to the point where rootedness, whether that would be in a marriage, a neighborhood, uh, an ethnicity, um, it's almost perceived to be constrictive oh yes it's a liability it will weigh you down because the best thing to be in the neoliberal liquid age is uh on the move relationally and geographically right but but as a result we have people who are lonelier than they've ever been right so there was a study completed and published online in 2018 um, by, by Cigna, I believe, the health insurance company in the U.S., but the research was conducted by Ipsos Research Firm. It was a study on loneliness. It's one of the largest uh, such studies we've had. Over 20,000 subjects participated in this study. It's published online for free. I'll give Cigna credit for that. Um, they published it online for free. You can download the whole 80-something pages of data if you want to. But the finding was this. The finding was that currently in the United States, approximately half the population is lonely. And here's the kicker, to get back to your point about millennials, for example. The rather unexpected thing they found was that 
if you graph the findings by age groups, the younger you are, the more likely you are to be lonely. This is striking because our, our mental stereotypes of lonely people are usually elderly people in nursing homes. Right. I'm not saying that, that there's not loneliness there, but uh, statistically speaking, it's younger people who are lonely. That troubles me. Mm -hmm. And it, when you study loneliness, it parallels the uh, incidence of addiction and depression and anxiety. It turns out, I even talked to church groups like this, that uh, human, it turns out that human beings are pack animals. You know, they're like dogs. <laughs> so if you, if you take them out of a pack, uh, they become very unhealthy, psychologically, emotionally, and physically. Some of the findings of this study, they did a similar study in the UK and found that the mortality rate was like three times higher for people who were lonely. Of all causes, and all, age, all ages as well. All ages as well. So, if you were a, a, a lonely thirty-year-old, your mortality rate is higher than a, a similar thirty-year-old who has, you know, a, a place they belong, mm -hmm. people that they feel they belong to. Mm -hmm. And I think it was Johan Hari who recently wrote a book about depression referred to it as a, de a disease of disconnection. Right. Right. So we, we underestimate um, this problem of not having a sense of belonging. The only thing we feel like we belong to anymore is the market. Right. You know, our consumer choices in the identity of pol the identity politics of today we must often identify ourselves by our consumer choices. Yeah. And our consumer choices may yeah. even signal who we are politically or right. any other number of ways. Yeah. Yes. I should add too, I'm, I may be talking more than I need to peers at this point, but I'll, I'll quickly add to this super stirring that ironically, when you get a society that's radically individualized, you know, what, everything's broken down to individual decisions and people are broken apart from institutions, communities, organizations. When you isolate people, that is a perfect um, breeding ground for herd mentalities to develop mm -hmm. because they don't have, what was your phrase that you, you borrowed from your friend? Um, contrasting sets. Yes. That's right. You don't have a contrasting set. Right. And as a result of that, you don't have, I would call a tradition other than the consumerism and capitalist mindset in which we all live. You don't have an alternative set. As a result of that, we have today herd mentalities. Why do we think that um, conspiracy theories breed so easily on social media? Mm -hmm. because people are isolated largely and they offer explanations exactly yeah the herd is in some sense sort of the shadow of real community mm -hmm. and i think for many people maybe the only sense of that that they've ever had 
Um, so there's one, I'd like to give you an anecdote that just sort of relates to some of this. And then I've got um, one of the more complex ideas in your book I'd like to talk about. Um, a lot of this all kind of gelled for me was uh, my wife and I and a third person, Kevin Martin, we, uh, we have a, a nonprofit that goes into the main state prison. And we teach the guys how to be yoga teachers and we do a little recovery work with them. And the way our schedules work, my wife is basically the yoga instructor and I go in there on a weekly basis and often go in by myself. And I noticed after a while how much I looked forward to going into this prison. That's a medium maximum security prison. And I noticed that, you know, I, I drive down Route 1, which is very much, you know, the auto dealership and taco time and cigarette shopper and all this stuff. And then they put the prison down a rural, rural road where nobody can see it. And I get in the parking lot and I have to take the wedding ring off and take these little identifiers off. And I go through these layers of security. And then we go into the uh, activities building and we have a room dedicated to us. And the inmates are, uh, they're from born in Haiti and Somalia and they're Muslims and they're Christians and there's a lot of poor white folk and they're varying levels of education. And, and you know, we do yoga and we meditate and we have fun. But afterwards is the fun. Afterwards is we just kind of talk shit. <laughs> and because the Gutenberg brain is still alive in that place, you know, there's a premium on story and, and, and joking and, and what have you been reading? And, you know, these guys can recite whole poems and do skits from plays for you. And, and it's wonderful. It's, it's outstanding. And that's why I look so, so much forward to it. But then when I leave, what I noticed after a while is as I went through the layers of security and put on these identifiers, and get in my car and drive home, I am, I myself experienced what Bruce Alexander would call dislocation. Mm. I have to go into a main, into a prison to feel really integrated and intimate with some folks. Mm -hmm. And then as I go back into the supposedly free world, I'm, you know, driving alone in a car by fast food signs. Very fascinating, right? Really fascinating. So I've heard similar stories from folks who work um, in prisons, especially working in the ways that you're talking about, where they really talk, mm -hmm. listen to the inmates. Many similar stories where, um, contrary to um, popular thinking, communities form in prisons. I'm not saying it's not a dangerous place and that there's not other horrible things that go on in prisons. But uh, communities tend to spontaneously form as well, especially if someone like you goes in and provides a space and place to just shoot the shit, as you talked about, just mm -hmm. talk about themselves, their lives, or just stuff. And bonds begin to develop. You see a similar thing, I bet, peers in some of your 12-step groups. Oh, sure. At least the ones that work well, yep. that go well, yep. a similar thing happens. Yep. 
So I think there's something profoundly uh, theological about that as well. Again, I see um, issues that religion has talked about stirring all over the place, even when it's not called religion. Mm-hmm. There's something bonding about, now I believe in joy, don't get me wrong, but, but that's, let me, that's another subject I'll put aside for the moment. There's something bonding about people who share suffering together, who labor under a common burden Mm -hmm. of oppression or some burdensome situation, whether it be grief, whether it be addiction, whether it be imprisonment. Um, And we forget this. So if we suppress our feelings, going back to the idea of normotic illness, if we become unaware of our grief or sorrow or depression or whatever it be, we are losing one of the prime avenues that bonds us to other people when it's shared. If it's kept to yourself, it just drives you nuts. Yeah. But if you share it with others, it forms strong bonds of meaning. You write so beautifully in that vein when you describe the the church and family of your youth Mm. and what what becoming educated and, and moving into a different class, actually what you gained and what you lost. Yes. Yes, speaking confessionally, I've I've experienced psychosocial dislocation, to use Bruce Alexander's term, Mm -hmm. by becoming educated and moving moving away from Appalachia. uh, My sister's still living. I love my sister. I've been texting with her today. Um, Today is the, I forget, I think seven or eighth year anniversary of my mother's death. Uh, So we've been texting today. Um, And I love the people I grew up with in Fort Payne, Alabama, in the foothills of of Appalachia. It's it's a small mill town. used to be a mill town. All the mills got uh, closed down under the neoliberal expansion and moving industries to China and other places. But... um, I still have fond memories and carry within myself a sense of belonging to not only family, but to community, to the people around me. Probably to the land itself. To the land itself. Absolutely. You know, when my father died, my last living uh, parent, as I said, about uh, it's about three years ago now, I guess. Um. We had to deal with our estate, my sister and I. And I inherited mainly two things, a a small home that my parents built when I was eight years old. And I lived in until I left for college. And 41 acres of land that my father owned, my parents owned, out near Dogtown, Alabama. Believe it or not, there's a place (laughs) called Dogtown, Alabama. Love it. 41, nothing on it, just raw land and forest. I didn't have much trouble, though I had some tinges of nostalgia 
selling the house. I just, I couldn't be an out-of-state landlord. I sold the home. I cannot sell the property. I cannot sell the land. Feels sacrilegious? It feels sacrilegious. It doesn't feel like you should own land. Right. It feels like uh, I belong to the land instead of the land belonging to me. Mm -hmm. it's, it's space that I remember walking over with my father uh, and his double barrel side by side shotgun hunting rabbits when I was a kid. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm very much um, dedicated to being an environmentalist for this reason too. I, I don't think land belongs. The earth doesn't belong to us. No, no, our native brothers and sisters know that, don't they? They do indeed. I guess I don't want to be abrupt in the segue, but one thing I do want to ask you about is the concept, one of the three D's, mm -hmm. desymbolization. Ah. When we get to a place where we can't speak ourselves, what is... Right. Um, the three D's in the book I borrowed from, uh, I borrowed stuff from everybody. I, I stole shamelessly. <laughs> I'm glad you did. <laughs> Denis Robert Defour, which, which uh, by the way, Bruce Alexander pointed me to his book, his book, The Art of Shrinking Heads. He mentions uh, these throughout the book without collapsing them into the three D's. I did that for him. Uh, he talks about deinstitutionalization, desymbolization, and desubjectivation. Uh, so quickly, deinstitutionalism, deinstitutionalization is what we've already talked about. It's separating people from communities, institutions, social structures. Uh, desubjectivation is no longer feeling like a self. You know, we, we become fragmented and fall apart. Desymbolization, though, that's an interesting piece. It, it goes with both. It happens when deinstitutionalization occurs and it accompanies uh, desubjectivation or literally falling apart. It turns out that we human beings are storytelling animals, like you talked about back in the prison. They, and indigenous peoples have taught us this. Um, we know who we are when we can tell a story about ourselves, right? A cohesive, coherent story. One that quote, makes sense. I often have people come to therapy, especially in first sessions, and they don't know where to start talking. Wow. And they, they don't, they'll even say sometimes, I can't, I can't tell you a coherent story about this, about why I'm here. And I sometimes tell them that's okay. If you could, you probably wouldn't need to be here. Mm. Mm. So the, the importance of being able to tell a more or less cohesive story about yourself. Um, we underestimate how critical this is to living a full life. And where do those stories come from? We don't make them up as individuals. They're part of a collective narrative of we the people, 
right. or in Africa, uh, there's the word Ubuntu. Ubuntu is often translated into English, I am because we are. So in Ubuntu, or in we the people, there's a collective story that we locate ourselves inside of. So our individual story becomes part of a larger story. So I say that I'm against individualism, but I'm for individuality. The preciousness of the individual, which Jesus, by the way, talked about. He said things, according to the Gospels, like if if your father in heaven knows when the sparrow falls, how much more does he know you? That even the hairs of our heads are numbered. Now that's precious. That's a preciousness of the individual. So ironically, true individuality comes out of a collective narrative. I am because we are. I'm able to be an individual, free to be me, because I belong to a collective, not just any collective, collective, as I say at the end of the book, that nurture soul and amplify hope. So collectives that nurture soul are those who allow us to be ourselves as individuals they don't make us lie <laughs> right right they and, let us tell the truth and if we come together and tell our stories then these these tapestries can weave tighter and deeper mm-hmm. and i'm afraid in the united states today we're living in a society where we are not allowing people to tell their stories you know, the, the, the minute that you say Black Lives Matter, about 25% of the population shuts down yeah. and is against you. Right. Or you talk about trans, trans rights right. or GOBTQ rights, 25, 30% of the population shuts down. Or to be fair, if you open your mouth and you have a MAGA hat on. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah, the same thing went the other way when when um, when um, Hillary Clinton referred to Trump voters as a basket of deplorables. <laughs> right. I kind of knew then that she'd lost the election. Oh, yeah. And that wouldn't be forgotten anytime soon. It still isn't forgotten. <laughs> no, no. Well, <clears throat> I guess uh, in wrapping up, a couple things I'd like to ask is um, you, you like Bruce Alexander, have done something that's kind of um, very counter, I would say. One is you wrote a very profound psychological text, but you really wrote it from outside of that academy. I mean, you wrote more from sociology than than psychology. Alexander, in a way, wrote more from anthropology than he did psychology. Mm-hmm. And then you also, both of you, went global. You know, you weren't you weren't specializing here. You were going global. And I would imagine. I guess my question is: Was it heartening for you 
to, as you research this book, to discover that there were so many thinkers, so many sympathetical thinkers out there, that these questions were troubling other people and you weren't, you weren't a voice crying in the wilderness? Yes, yes. I'm glad you asked that question. Um, I, I became some, simultaneously more melancholic and more hopeful as I wrote the book. <laughs> I think you just described my temperament. <laughs> I've always told my students that I'm a melancholic. You know, you leave me alone for a few minutes and I'm depressed. Uh, but I like it. <laughs> uh, yeah, it seems more honest somehow. Um, but yes, I, I was I was heartened by people who, many of whom do not know each other. Mm. Mm. And they're writing in disparate fields, anthropology, sociology, political science, um, economics, uh, philosophy, some theology, and so forth. Um, coming to similar viewpoints. What was disheartening to me, um, or one thing that was disheartening to me as a person teaching in a theological school and as a minister and theologian and therefore valuing um, a tradition, you can talk to me again sometimes about my, about my criticism of Christianity. I have lots of criticisms. So I, I do not sentimentalize Christianity. It's, it's done many horrendous things across the centuries, including participating in colonialism, right? But it, it also has values that are not Western and that are not European. Jesus was a Palestinian Jew, right? But Back to what I was disheartened by, I'm disheartened by how few churches, ministers, theologians are talking about this. We talk about religion still like capitalists. We talk about religion as if it were a private thing. You know, your quote, personal relationship with Jesus, and that's the end of it. Right. We don't talk the way Jesus talked. Jesus talked about our responsibility to others and, and the poor um, and to everyone, basically. So I, in my theology, a, a good Christian is someone who's turned out toward the world, not in the effort to turn them into Christians, but to love them as God loves us. So there's nothing I enjoy better than sitting at a table, enjoying the diversity of people, people of other faith traditions, whether they Jew are Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, or others, uh, people of, of uh, different racial identities, di different sexual identities. Um, I, that's when I feel the richness of the presence of what we call God, right? So I was disheartened by that. By how little theologians are paying attention. It, I mean, this is an anti-capitalist book. And I never imagined growing up, as I say sometimes to my students, out from under a rock in Alabama, <laughs> in the hills, as a Southern Baptist, no less, that in my mature years, I would be writing criticisms of capitalism. Not because I'm a Marxist, 
It's not that I don't think Marx had valuable analyses, but I'm not a I'm not a Marxist ideologist, right? You know, like a faith. I'm not a Marxist, and I'm not a socialist in the sense of being an ideologue for socialism. You know, like a faith system. I'm a Christian. Right. I'm against capitalism because I'm a Christian. Yeah. So. Um, we're not hearing enough against capitalism. I read an article as I was writing the book by an economist of all things. And she wrote in her, this piece to, in a peer reviewed journal, I forget where she was talking about theologians, theologians views of the economy. And she said this, she said, no major theologian, no major theologian, between the 1900, around 1900 through the 1960s would, was willing to defend capitalism. Mm. They were all critical of capitalism. It's only in this most recent radical revolutionary turn in capitalism that many are calling neoliberalism that many theologians have, got, have lined up behind it. Right. Or at the very least, they have shut up because they're afraid if they talk about cap against capitalism, they'll get branded as a communist or socialist or a Leninist or, you know, one of those awful terms that nobody knows the definition of anyway. <laughs> yeah. But it's bad. We know that it's bad, right? Yeah, it's bad. We don't do that here. <laughs> so, yes, uh, I, that's a long answer to your question, but... I'm hopeful that there are people out there that are paying attention, uh, but they're not given, they're not being given enough voice. Well, that's it. So I, I often wonder about that. So a while back you used the term organic and right. reference to how people come together organically and form bonds. And I'm, you know, um, Given that you can't call it a media blackout, but you can say a book like this or Alexander's The Globalization of Addiction is, experiences a certain blackout in the academy where it would normally have been read. Yes. But at the same, by the same token, there are all these people that are thinking along the same lines, and then there are readers, you have readers, mm -hmm. and you almost wonder if in a very positive sense, there's something organically rising up, you know, and it's got almost a, a, a what do you call it, a hundredth monkey effect where this Polish sociologist is thinking like this pastoral theologian in Tennessee. So yeah, yeah. There is, to me, the very fact of this book is hopeful. Um, okay, thank you. I'm glad, glad to hear you say that. Well, and I, and, I, and I would like to finish by saying, I'm, I'm going to be the Pied Piper of this book. <laughs> as best I can, I will be your Pied Piper. It may be limited, but I will do my best. I mean, I think that much of it. So, Well, it, the, this kind of book and Bruce Alexander's book and, and many of the books I cite in, the, in my book, uh, you know, they're not going to become bestsellers. And... Many of them, as you point out, are not even popular in the academy. Mm -hmm. And you might wonder why that is. I think why that is, is 
the academy has been feeding at the trough of capitalism. Yeah. It's not going to bite the hand that feeds it. Yeah. Right? No. That's right. So Zygmunt Bauman grew up poor in Poland. Right? Um, and I don't want you to think that I was destitute growing up. Um, my sister called that to my attention one time and kind of resented that I referred to us as poor when I, we were poor when she's three years younger than me. She doesn't remember it as well as I do. But when I was a preschooler, we were really what we call dirt poor in Alabama. But my father got a union job when I was eight. And if he hadn't gotten a union job working for General Electric, I would have never been able to go to college. That's right. See, so I don't think I could have written this book, ironically, if I hadn't grown up with the people I grew up with in Alabama. I'd think if I'd grown up middle class or with a silver spoon in my mouth, wouldn't have happened. So that there's something organic back to your point about and it's These a, people who know. It's a tribute to them too. So, Thank you. I hope it is. Well, this has been a real pleasure. Um, and I do hope that there will be uh, further conversations. So, Here is, you, you'll have to get uh, the other Bruce and I together sometime. Oh, that's on the schedule. <laughs> uh, on the schedule. So Bruce Alexander and I, you, thank you for introducing us via email. We have struck up a conversation via email. And uh, I have told him that reading his book, The Globalization of Addiction, uh, back when it first came out, is around 2010, is what set me on this course of research. So I feel grateful to him, though. Uh, Bruce Alexander would be quick to point out that he's no Christian theologian. <laughs> no, but I'm always teasing him that if he keeps hanging around with us, something might happen. <laughs> it could rub off, right? <laughs> well, he sounds awfully Christian for somebody who's not. <laughs> Dearest, thank you for this time. I've so enjoyed talking with you, and uh, I look forward to what I hope will be a friendship. I do, too. Thank you much. All right. Have a good day. You, too. Take care. Thank you for joining us. For more information, you can find us at resistancerecovery.com.